The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland, the richest country with the worst vaccination program. But enough of that. This week will be a COVID-free edition. First, I hand over the mic to my colleagues in Asia to discuss how seemingly every company in China has gone gaga for manufacturing electric vehicles, and not just car companies. Various reports have suggested that Huawei, the telecommunications gear maker, wants a piece of the action. Ditto Hire, which makes appliances, including ones with the GE brand. Xiaomi, which makes smartphones, is also interested. Even Evergrande, which builds condos, is apparently eyeing the market. Pete Sweeney, Katrina Hamlin, and Robin Mack debate their likelihood of success. After that, I chat with Gina Chan in Washington and Rob Searin in New York about President Joe Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure investment pledge. It's a huge number, but not far off from what engineering and safety experts say is needed for the U.S. to keep up its roads, tunnels, bridges, ports, and runways. But getting it through the Senate, where Biden's Democrats have just 51 votes, including a key moderate or two, won't be easy, not least because Biden is promising to increase corporate tax rates from around 21% to 28% to help pay for the effort. Give a listen. I'm Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and I'm here with our editors, Pete Sweeney and Robin Mack. We've been thinking a lot about electric vehicles in this part of the world. Um, not just because car makers are trying to make these things, but but now everybody else is too. Most recently, we heard that Xiaomi, which is better known for its mobiles and other electronics like rice cookers and air purifiers, are going to be investing about $10 billion over 10 years to try and make electric cars. Now, I read about this and my take on this was that at the, at the face of it, it's pretty ridiculous. But if anyone can pull this off, it's Xiaomi's founder, Lei Jun. But I know that uh, my colleague Pete and, and Robin had uh, some different views about this. So, Pete, first of all, what, what was your initial reaction when you heard this news? Well, my first reaction was, oh, God, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> it by itself, I would have been less concerned. But this is the latest in a series of announcements um, by all sorts of companies piling into uh, piling into the EV sector, some of which have nothing have had no experience making any sort of automobile before um so in addition to xiaomi xiaomi is coming after uh hire which is a white goods manufacturer um you know partnered with saic with this or is planning to partner with a, a giant state-owned um, automotive champion to build evs evergrand which is as heavily indebted property developer is going into it balmung group is another giant conglomerate everybody seems to be piling into this i like xiaomi i i was one of the first early adopter of Xiaomi cell phones. I've got Xiaomi hardware in my house. So I like the company and I like the way it's turned around. But my concern is simply whether this sort of entry, I mean, Foxconn, Apple, you know, these guys coming into the market is going to be healthy and actually create value as opposed to destroying a lot of investor capital. I think probably not, but I know Robin disagrees. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I have a much more optimistic take on this. I mean, when I look at Xiaomi, I sort of see this company as a bit of an outlier. And like Katrina says, if anyone can pull it off, it could be Xiaomi just because, you know, they are a very established, you know, hardware manufacturer. They have all the supply chain expertise. They have a very well-respected founder and entrepreneur. And it doesn't seem like, you know, Xiaomi just kind of decided to jump on this bandwagon and, and sort of go 
you know, with what's trendy, it looks like they did put quite a lot of thought into this. They already have a lot of patents. Do you look at other uh, tech companies as well? So you have Apple uh, going into the space. I mean, there is a case to be made that tech companies do have a shot at electric vehicles, you know, and I'm not talking about tire, which, you know, makes washing machines. I'm talking companies that have deep supply chain expertise. And I think there is something to be said about how they can change the way cars are made. And I think a very good example of this is if you look at how smartphones are made today. So most of it is contracted out to Foxconn. So you have companies like Xiaomi that don't even need to own factories and, you know, facilities, you know, and they're able to put together a smartphone pretty quickly and cheaply and sell it. And I think something similar is happening in electric vehicles. One of the things where I'm going to half agree with this is, I mean, there's been this thesis floating around for a while that, like, in general, the automobile itself is sort of a commodity. And like the value is in the branding, the experience, you know, the the outward design, whatever. And like people were calling for companies to basically open source like engine and braking design, like just like let's just have that be generic and then we will apply our IP and our, our industrial interface design and, and, you know, our service standards to it. And that's be where our add the value and let's stop competing over, you know, engines and carburetors and whatnot. But that hasn't happened for a reason. For one thing, there's all these companies that have supply chain experience and deep experience making cars, and those are the car makers. Even though making electric vehicles is mechanically much more simple than combustion engines, I think a combustion engine has has like 300 moving parts and an electric motor has like three or something like that is one of the figures they use. But it's still really complicated. And it's, it's one thing to make a car. It's another thing to make one profitable. I mean, making car brands is really hard. And arguably, like China already has too many players in this space. Like the whole Chinese automotive industry itself was supposed to be consolidating. We we're supposed to be jammed together, these state giants, you know, and rationalizing an industry that's looking way overloaded with entrants. And now in addition to every single car maker being going into EVs because they have to, because the government is ordering them a certain amount of production to be dedicated to EVs, now you're going to have these other players coming in. So sure, they, they may have supply chain expertise. I mean, are they going to be better than like a Geely or like a Tesla, you know, or Neo, you know, these companies that just make cars? Is, is Xiaomi going to be able to go in and elbow them out of their control of supply chains and their ability to distribute and sell cars? I have my doubts. I know they can make a car. I mean, a lot of people are making these cars. Can they make it profitably? And this is the problem we've had with China again and again, where you have too much market entry, where you have these bloodbaths at the end. And I don't see how, you know, having, you know, real estate companies and, and stuff coming in is going to help with that. I think it's going to make it worse. We've already got a chip shortage, right? Well, I have I take your point and I have my doubts as well. But on that chip shortage, that's kind of shown that even traditional car makers are having to relearn their business because this technology is so new. And that might just make it a little bit easier for actual technology companies like Xiaomi to uh, to make a go of it. But I mean, there's this whole thing like that people are ignoring, which is like you don't have to make the whole car. I mean, Xiaomi, if they make the best interface, if they make the best, if they come up with like the best autonomous system, the coolest design, they can always sell that to a manufacturer who's good at assembly, you know, has a distribution network. They don't have to develop their own brand and make their mm -hmm. own car and outsourced. Right. I mean, I think Xiaomi, for one, they have a pretty established 
consumer brand in China. So I don't think they need to start from scratch and sort of build up a separate car brand. And I think there's not a lot of detail in terms of how Xiaomi is going to go about making electric vehicles. But I mean, there is one emerging model, which Foxconn is trying to do, which is have a contract, which is the outsource production. So Foxconn is trying to be a contract electric vehicle maker for car designers. I mean, it's a model that has actually worked in semiconductors, right? So you have contract chip makers like TSMC that actually make the chips. And that has actually lowered the barriers in the industry. So you have companies like Qualcomm or NVIDIA that are one of the world's biggest chip makers, but they don't have any manufacturing capabilities. Um, So they are pure chip design companies. And you can sort of see that, you know, for electric vehicles, like this kind of model, you can apply the same sort of concept to it, where you have pure design and software companies going to a contract company like Foxconn saying, here's my car design, can you please make a car for me? But who knows how that will, I mean, I I get Pete's point where the economics are probably still being worked out right now, and the margins are probably very low at this point. But I mean, there are, there is a an example in, in semiconductors that I think the car industry can follow to some extent. Well, it is following it already. We have um, a sort of early example of this, right? I think that's what you were about to say, right, Pete? Um, Neo's been trying something along those lines. So Neo, if if you haven't heard of them, is uh, this sort of Chinese Tesla wannabe that's listed in New York, and so it's had quite a lot of attention recently. And they have been outsourcing a lot of their manufacturing to JAC, which is a state-backed Chinese car maker. And to be fair to them, that has worked fairly well for them so far. And they are still trying to develop their own factories and manufacturing capabilities. But as they kind of got up and running, they lent on this traditional automaker to get things done for them. And they, you know, they may have had a few quality crises, but generally it, it seems to work for them. So maybe maybe that is something that could pan out for others too. Well, yeah, you say quality. I mean, if that's the big question mark. I mean, I, I don't doubt that given the push into making cars much more software-y than they were. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. Like a lot of these guys are advertising like the touchscreen as much as right. the, as the And also the services. So I buy that. The services the are Yeah. Right. But I mean, like, keep in mind that the difference between this and a smartphone and everything else is like car crashes are deadly. Chinese mm. manufacturers have had a bad reputation for, which they've been gradually working off to be making safer cars. For Xiaomi, for Evergrande, for any of these people, their reputation for quality is going to be last as up to the first recall or the first deadly accident with like a brake failure or something. And then at that point, that will test you know, the robustness of their financial buffers, the robustness of their control over their supply chain, who on in the end is on the hook. You know, if Foxconn makes a car for Apple and that car is full of flaws, which brand is going to take the biggest hurt? I mean, it could it could work. I have my worries, especially given this, the overloaded state of the Chinese automotive demand. And I mean, just point out one thing that like, I, I feel like everybody's rushing to kind of say that the, the domestic car makers can't learn this stuff. When I think a, a lot of them are trying to and are aware that they see this competition coming on. But like, we're, we're talking about an industry, even in China, um, which is, is this huge push to make everybody EV is still in its infancy. It's a very small demand for EV so far. And most of them are being supplied, you know, by the conventional auto automaker brands, like the top selling marks were Tesla's th- Model 3 in China last year, and then another one made by SIC and and um, I believe it was a GM partnership, a joint venture. So anyways, like like right now, the market is still being largely dominated 
um, headlines aside, you know, by these these conventional or, or by these automaker marks. Um, so I think if Xiaomi or, or Hire or whatever wants to come in and make a dent, they're really going to have to bring their lunch. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just going to circle back to where we started to finish this up. When Xiaomi first started making smartphones, I, I think, you know, we were covering it then and we, we were a little bit cynical about their ability to compete with some of the bigger names and who were a bit better known. But they did it. So... Um, well, I, I think it's competitor Huawei, right? I mean, like Xiaomi has had a lot of help by my Huawei company, <laughs> but I like I like Xiaomi, so I'll take your take your point. Yeah, I, I think we'll be coming back to this debate in the future. Thanks, Pete and Robin. I look forward to talking about this again with you soon. Thanks. So Joe Biden has uh, introduced a massive infrastructure bill. It's uh, something like in the order of $2 trillion. Rob, you wrote about this, um, the need for infrastructure. Now, of course, uh, we know this. And during the Trump administration, it was like infrastructure week every other week. Uh, not that anything got done. You have uh, structural engineers who are arguing for trillions and trillions it's needed. Um, what? Let's just talk about the before we get to whether this can even get done and how. What? What's Go through the benefits. What are the economic benefits of a big infrastructure plan? Like so, that? you know, if anyone's flown into America over the past like decade, you've realized it's like flying into a developing nation. It's not like flying into like Switzerland or, you know, most other countries. And that has costs. So the American Society of Civil Engineers gave the infrastructure a grade of C minus. Um, they do this every every few years. And that's, you know, that's below, it's, it's a bad grade. And they pin the cost, um, it, it, just a ginormous cost. Um, I think it was, it, they said it would uh, cost about $10 trillion in, in lost benefits over the next 10 years just from having subpar infrastructure. And some of these areas are, you know, they're actually incredibly high return. The problem is the private sector just won't do it. Uh, one area I looked at was um, replacing lead pipes. So um, Biden, Biden proposed spending $45 billion to remove lead pipes. I mean, if you've followed the Flint crisis. Right, Flint, um, Michigan, have, where the water was contaminated with the lead, which yeah. is, of course has huge um, uh, deleterious uh, effects on, on people who drink it. Yeah, so, so for the $45 billion, I mean, the reason why um, private sector won't do it is because, well, 80, about almost 90% of our water supply is delivered by municipal systems. So it's the private sector isn't doing it. And a lot of these lead uh, pipes are in areas where the population is kind of poor. You know, they're older industrial areas. And these areas, you know, they can find it tough to find the money to um, replace these replace these pipes. But the benefits are really big. So um, the well, that's an area was, where government has to step in. Is what you're exactly. saying. The benefit is great because you have, well, because you reduce, you know, fatalities or you increase public health. But the bigger, I mean, you also point about, you know, whether it's roads or bridges or airplane or, or uh, airports. These are things that that ultimately, um, the benefits were down to, in particular, businesses. And so, which brings me to Gina. You're in Washington now. This is where the rubber meets the road, as it were. How to pay for. A, a infrastructure plan. Um, what's the what is the Biden administration telling you in terms of how they think they can get this this done? Well, they're largely turning to corporations um, through tax policy, and there's a whole host of uh, issues that they are looking at on that point. Um, the biggest one is probably increasing just the headline corporate tax rate from 21%, which uh, was 
established under the Donald Trump years um, to pushing it to 28%. Um, interestingly, companies are actually not um, howling too much about that aspect of it. Um, they, funnily enough, thought 21% was kind of low when, when the Trump folks were negotiating it. They thought maybe 25%, which is where Senator Joe Manchin is at right now. Um, they thought that would be kind of a reasonable, uh, reasonable place to compromise. But the other areas where they are definitely complaining are more on the global tax front, whether it's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's proposal for a global minimum tax or other things that would hit the overseas profits of companies. Okay, so so going from 21 to 28 percent corporate tax rate, having gone from 35 to 21, they can kind of stomach that is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they don't think. 28% is where it will end up, just given uh, the slim majority that the Democrats have in the Senate, that, you know, it will probably be a lower number, more around what Senator Manchin is proposing. So that's okay. Um, but, but no Republicans again, are going to vote for that, right? Because that, the signature sort of piece of legislation that was passed that that is moderately um, conservative would be the tax cuts conservative yeah. under Trump. No, exactly. And that's why a person like Senator Manchin, the, the moderates in the Senate are important because they're probably not going to get any Republicans on board. Um, but then the question is, you know, where what about these other tax increases, especially on the global front? Um, they're proposing like a minimum uh, tax on overseas income of 21 percent. That compares to like the floor of 10.5% right now on intangible assets like uh, patents and trademarks and other intellectual properties. So that's a pretty big hike. And that's where um, you're hearing companies complain more. And that's what uh, Janet Yellen, uh, the Treasury Secretary, floated the other day. Is that right? Which, uh, which got everybody excited. Yeah, basically, I mean, that would be the U.S. version. Um, there are negotiations globally with uh, the OECD about a global minimum tax rate. Uh, she wants to have an agreement within the G20 countries. 21% uh, is probably a bit high for those other countries. Um, and frankly, it's, you know, a convenient timing for Yellen to <laughs> pitch this right. because the U.S. doesn't want to be higher than all these other Western nations. Uh, but it does sound like, you know, there there is a bit of a meeting of the minds, um, even if uh, the number is still a bit of a ways off. Now, what it, when you when you talk to uh, business, when you talk to companies out there, um, I, I'm well, we talk about infrastructure. It has a it has a pretty big benefit, whether ports are, are, are operating better, whether roads and highways and transportation. These are these are moving goods and vehicles and all that kind of stuff. It's all. It, it reminds me of, didn't Obama, Gina, say something about, like, you didn't build this, and then took a ton of flack for this? Yeah, no, he did. Um, the Republicans really jumped on that as much as they jumped on his tan suit. Um, <laughs> so there is a sense of, like, you know, you want to see, like, the idea of a vibrant American economy as people out there building things and and fixing the roads and seeing new buildings and all that. And um, although I have to say the the Biden plan does a lot in terms of um, green energy, a big push for electric vehicles and, and a lot of other things that Republicans are saying are not infrastructure, which is another uh, criticism from that side. 
Right, right. That's so. Do you think what? What do you think happens? Do they winnow down the bill? Does it become a smaller bill of, of, so that it sort of reduces some of that stuff, and then also then the need to pay for it is a little bit lower. I mean, you don't yeah, have to pay for it. it yeah, it may be winnowed down a bit, but I think um, it will still be a a big number and. You know, getting Manchin on board eventually, you know, will he say no to a bill that could provide jobs to his constituents in West Virginia? You know, I, I don't think so in the end. And he could just see if he can get someone like um, Republican Senator Susan Collins or, or another moderate Republican on board and sort of call it a day on his push for bipartisanship that can sort of check that box. What about Lisa Murkowski in Alaska? We can finally build that bridge to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, she's also somebody on that list. And these are also people who have good relationships with Biden and he will definitely be working the phones and, um, you know, trying to lobby for support um, on his end. So I think it it will actually be something that gets through, but it will probably be done through a process where they only need 51 votes um, instead right. of the, the usual filibuster-proof majority. And Rob, having looked at some of these infrastructural projects, what would be on your list? Like, if you there a few things that you think really have, you know, should get done, that would have great positive externalities for the economy, what would they be? It'd be, I mean, pretty much a lot of it does. Um, you know, if you could increase electrification, that'd be great. Build transmission lines, that'd be fantastic um, because you could do things like increase, use more green energy um, and, the, and it would lower consumer bills as well. Doing things like upgrading ports, upgrading, you know, the rail infrastructure. Basically, there's a lot of stuff in the United States where we've, We've looked at it and said, well, you know, it's good enough for now. We don't really need to invest the money. And investing it would pay off huge, huge benefits to everyone. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I'm sure this one is going to it's going to spin off lots of stories uh, on politics, on projects, on everything over the next couple months. So stick with it. Thanks. Thanks. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get high-quality podcasts. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and thank you.